podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. So welcome everybody to the latest edition of Macklin's Take. And we are backstage at the Nottingham Arena. Myself, Andy Clark, and joining me as always, Matt Macklin. And appropriately, given that we're in Nottingham, we have got Mr. Carl Froch. Carl, good to see you. Good to be here. It's worth the wait this was, actually. We're in Nottingham now, it's authentic. It, it is, absolutely. It's come together The last time perfectly. I was in this room, I was chatting to Sugar Ray Leonard before my fight against Butte. This well, changing room, and it was, it was amazing. But I'll let you, I'll let you host this. Um, well, that's exactly what we were going to come on to immediately, because... I remember that night. I remember it really, really vividly. It was the first big fight night I covered for Sky. I was commentating on the undercard. Ian Dark was doing the top of the bill. What a welcome to the pros that was. It was absolutely incredible. It was incredible. I, I, I remember the weigh-in, which was uh, you know bathed in sunshine. Quite a lot of Romanians down at the weigh-in, just out the front there. And the whole build-up to the fight, really, and I would say it was one of the most pivotal of your career. Usually people end up talking about uh, a certain fight at a certain stadium in front of a certain number of people but this one off the back of the defeat to Ward you wanted to go straight back in Butte came in with a big reputation a lot of confidence some people made you underdog which you know I was kind of outraged on your behalf full disclosure I was a big Frotch fan when you were fighting and I just couldn't see any way that people could make him I've got no way of checking that but I'll take your word for it (laughs) I couldn't see any way that people could make him such a big favourite and the atmosphere when you came in was was as good as any I've experienced in boxing ringside. You know, you think of Wembley, you think of Cardiff. It was This place was absolutely fit to burst that night. Anyone who was here will tell you that. Anyone who watched it on the TV will tell you that. No easy way out. Great choice of ring walk music. And then we were talking about this on the way over, me and Ed Robinson and Andy Scott. Um, we're just before the next gen bill on, on the Friday, on Friday the 10th. That, that's, that's why we're at the Nottingham Arena. I think most of you would have guessed that, but um, you're used to the way we do these things by now. And we were saying that it was, it was an old school beating, to describe it as such, because there wasn't an enormous amount of finesse about it, but it was almost, you're in my backyard, I'm harder than you, and you did, to coin one of your recent phrases, back him up and absolutely smash him to bits. <laughs> if, you just take us back, if you just take us back to a bit of the build-up to that fight, because it was a bit of a crossroads for you, surely. If you'd lost, I know defeat for, for, for Carl Froch is unthinkable, but if you'd lost, that could have been it. Yeah, well, that, that's what inspired the ring tune music, actually, the title, No Easy Way Out. I thought to myself, if I'm going out, I'm going to go out in style. I'll go out on my back if necessary. And, um, you know, I'm not one for getting knocked down and staying down. I've got a bit of a tough chin. I'm, I'm kind of renowned for that in the game. And I just thought, after losing to Andre Ward and being involved in the Super Six and being involved in back-to-back fights against top fighters, when I met Eddie, met up with Eddie Hearn, Eddie Hearn was actually kind of looking after me in, in between my, my split with my old promoter. So his first fight was the Glenkov Johnson fight, then Andre Ward, which I, which I lost on points. Close points decision against a not-bad fighter. Um, don't look that one up but um, it was kind of my first fight back on British soil as as well as needing to be for me a big fight now if I'd just come back and fight a numpty you know fight a journeyman I just I couldn't get motivated I just lost my world title and the potential to win the ring magazine belt you know and WBC the green and gold belt the IBF was up for grabs I thought to myself that's going to motivate me so I had a conversation with Eddie Hearn who was now looking after me and I said look IBF champion, Lucian Butte, he's the only other big and best super middleweight in the world who wasn't in this tournament. And he's actually ranked number one with the um, Ring magazine and the Boxing Monthly at the time. So I thought, well, I've just lost a ward. If I can come straight back now into number, number one ranking with the IBF title, that's going to put me straight back on there, especially with Sky Sports. So that was the reason I, I said to Eddie Hearn, I want to fight Lucian Butte, and I backed myself to win. Not many people did. You're telling me you did. That's fantastic. It's good to know. But you, if you know your boxing, which you obviously do, you probably looked at Butte's previous form and who he'd boxed, and actually no big names jumped out. I don't want to play down my performance or my win, but I'm just being honest. He'd not really beaten anybody no, he, that he, great in been, fantastic style. He'd been protected, really. I mean, if you looked at his resume and you're going to compare it to Carl's, there was, there was just... There was no comparison at all. I mean, Carl had fought a who's who consistently, you know, going into what was seen 50-50 fights back to back after back. You know, the Kessler, Abraham, even you know what I mean? Even then it didn't turn out to be 50-50 fights. The Abraham one, he, he won every round. But, he, you know, he'd gone through that Super 6 tournament having 
tough fight after tough fight after tough fight. Butte didn't go into it and yet kind of retained his sort of number one, number two spot in the division, which, you know, hadn't really been proven, but that's how, where it was seen. That's where he was ranked, like you say, in the Ring magazine. But then that going into that fight, I, I actually remember seeing Carl in uh, Marbella after the fight and we were, I was going, you know, well done, what a, what a performance, blah, blah. And he said, oh, do you know what happened? He said, he said, he hit me with an uppercut at the end of the first round. He said, and I thought, God, that was a good shot. Sat back on the store and I thought to myself, if I'm going out here, I'm going out with a bang. And he goes, I just come out and just jumped on him. And I thought, I remember thinking, I love that attitude. You know what I mean? If I'm going out, I'm going out with a bang. And that's what happened. I mean, you jumped on him in the second round, hurt him. And that was it. You didn't really let him off the hook. Well, you mentioned that you spoke to Sugar Ray in this in this dressing room before you went out that night, and it was late too. That fight, it was really late because of the. I mean, in the evening because it was on North American TV, so it was well past midnight by the time you by the time you came out. And I think that definitely that definitely added to the added to the atmosphere, and it was absolutely packed out here. So, what was the feeling when you when you're walking to the ring? Because I think sometimes people look at at fighters, particularly. Well, all fighters, but particularly someone like yourself, and just think, you know, they probably don't really feel the nerves. They've got this sort of steely exterior, but everybody gets nervous. I mean, you you described that walk to the ring to us a few weeks ago as the Green Mile. I mean, that's that's pretty <laughs> evocative as descriptions go. So, what were you thinking when you were in here? Because you think about those fights with with, with the Kessel rematch and the fights with Gross. They just they would not have happened if you hadn't beaten Butte. No, exactly. The, we would never have got there, and it's amazing to think every fight actually in a, in a professional fighter's career is a crossroads fight because if you lose you go left and if you win you, you, you go up you know what I mean left or right and you go up because you're going up to the top and that's where you want to be so a loss is really detrimental it's not the end of the world depending on where you are in your career but a loss was unthinkable for me after losing to Ward and to answer your question I was really really nervous but in a confident way because I'd I'd learned to channel my nerves. I was a really nervous amateur. Without boring you with it, I was nervous without amateur. I felt like crying sometimes. I felt like hiding. I remember going to the toilet before before I went for a, a for a walk to the ring, um, and I'd be in the toilet and there'd be no one being there. I'd be on my own. I'd be thinking to myself, if I just didn't come out the toilets now, if I just climbed out that window and nobody saw me again, what would happen? And I'd be all right. Why am I doing this to myself? As a kid, I'm talking like 10, 11, 12 years old, and then you slowly slowly get confident but you're always nervous because you can't stop the the adrenal gland from releasing the adrenaline and when that adrenaline gets pumped into your veins you feel your stomach churning you feel your legs go weak you start shaking and you get scared and it's it's fight or flight it's a natural reaction it's how you cope with that reaction and how you deal with it and i made nerves my friend um that was a psychological that was that was success breeding and confidence but i was nervous but I was full of confidence in my training, my previous wins and losses. Even though I'd lost to Kessler and I'd lost to Andre Ward, I'd never been knocked out, never been badly beaten up. And I thought to myself, you know what? This is my town, Nottingham. It's my city. This kid's coming over from Canada into my territory. And you know what? He'd best be ready for an absolute war. So I psyched myself up and it was the ring walk. Stood on the platform, looking around this arena. And it holds about... Eight or nine on a good night. I mean, they say they can hold 10, 12. They can't. It's probably eight or 9,000 packed to the rafters. Floor completely jammed, probably illegally jammed, not health and safety <laughs> jammed. And then up to the rafters, over full. And the music kicked in, no easy way out. And it's the rocky music. Mm. And I just, I was on my toes, shadow boxing. And on the walk to the ring, I was just talking to myself. Don't let this guy beat you. This guy's a cheeky, and I'll, I won't swear. And then I thought I'd go in there and just absolutely put it on him and smash him to bits. And if I walk into shots, if I get knocked out trying, I'm going out on my shield, I'm leaving it all in the ring. Because I've done it as an amateur before, where I'd let myself down, World Championship semi-final against the Russian, just got behind my jab, boxed, moved, lost on points, got the bronze medal, devastated. I thought, that is not happening again since I turned pro. And through my whole pro career, I was ridiculously nervous every fight, but I backed myself because I trained so hard to make up with the nerves. So I was confident that I could put in a performance. And that particular evening, for me, I was indestructible. I taught myself into, the, into winning the fight on the way to the ring. And the minute I got under the lights and felt the heat of the lights on the back of my head, I looked over my opponent, Lucian Butte. I locked in on him. And in my head, I was like, I was having an out-of-body experience. Do or die. Seek and destroy. Just smash him to bits. Walk through anything I have to walk through. And I actually got hit with quite a lot of shots. I just didn't feel them. 
I think I was indestructible that night. That's how I felt anyway. And um, the nerves left me as soon as that first bell went. That's a great description. I mean, <clears throat> I remember watching it and, 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 and just hearing you talking about it. You know, it, it, I love hearing that. I love that's the way. I love that mentality. I love that attitude. And really, that performance... Like you say, if you'd have lost that fight, you maybe you'd have considered retiring. You're 35, you had a long, hard career, lots of hard fights. But the fact that you won it in such style, and it really kind of set you up then for that final phase of your career, which really are all the big fights that you probably made the most money and what you're, you're the most known for. You know, obviously the gross fights as well, but it was, uh, was kind of the most exciting and most... Uh, um, prolific part of your career really that final phase wasn't it most definitely and that was the, that was the injection of en- excitement and the fact that I won a title at the back of the Super 6 that I needed and Eddie Hearn needed and Sky Sports needed to, to bring back Sky on, on pay-per-view which, which ended with David Hay and Audley Harrison um, so that kind of fight upset the viewers at home that paid the money for it and said they're not at the money's worth I think and they had some, came out uh, of some massive viewing figures that night I think it was like 650,000 which I think had been like the biggest that had on a, exactly. a regular Saturday night, and they got it, and they got it very mm. cheap. That was a, a license fee. <laughs> I won't say what the money was, but it's it's not even a tenth of what I earned in my in my very next fight, which was the first easy fight I'd earned had in in probably three years since winning the world title in two thousand eight. I boxed back to back top level fighters, not not boasting myself, but check the resume from from mm. Jermaine Taylor right through to Abraham, even even um, Glenkov Johnson, the road warrior, the tough ass that, that knocked out. Um, Roy Jones Jr. and um, Antonio Tarva, you know, Abraham. I'm, ma- I'm no- mentioning all the names now, but I've not had an easy fight. So that was the first marked time fight, and that was then my penultimate fight before going on pay-per-view with Sky. And you're right, Matt, that's when I earned a few quid. And for me, it was well-deserved at the end of my career. I would doubt, I doubt. I don't think anyone could uh, begrudge you that. When you talk about the when you talked about the nerves there before you were going out, and, and it's interesting always to hear elite athletes just confess to nerves and the kinds of things they can do to you. And you said that you felt like climbing out of the window when you were a young amateur. And I think everybody can kind of identify with that. It, it, in the build-up to the Butte fight, and there may have been points during your career, Matt, where you felt like this. Have you ever kind of had the fear of if I lose this? It might be over, and then what am I going to do? Hey, hey, ki- hey, kids. Hey, everybody. Sitting here with a famous Slovenian philosopher. How are you doing, sir? I am uh, in health, thank you. Are you uh, excited about something? I am excited about this latest uh, CIA-funded venture. A CIA venture? Yes. It's called The Desire and Capital Podcast. Oh, what is it about? I refuse your fascist question. Well, there you have it. Listen to The Desire and Capital Podcast, coming soon to a bourgeois platform near you. On your marks, get set, go! Only in the Lucian Butte fight. And that's why it's so fitting that we're sitting here now in Nottingham. And that was a crossroads fight for me because I, I was definitely, I'd said to Rachel, my partner, I said, listen, if I lose this one tonight, I'm retiring. I've done okay. Financially, we're going to be okay. We're all right. We're, you know, we're not, we're not flying, but we'll be able to eat. And I said, I'm just going to go for it tonight. And I'd, I've never been knocked out in my career. Her first fight was a Jermaine Taylor fight. She didn't even know what boxing was all about, really. And I think she saw me fight Pascal on the television. Her dad phoned her up because I was into MMA and boxing. Um, just, so she just saw a that quick her one first on, fight. Just a quick was, one on Rachel, sorry. Didn't, yeah, um, when, when Butte was training, he went and trained at Jason Booth's gym, didn't he? And didn't they have kind of like crowd noise piped into the gym to try and recreate the noise that Rachel made at ringside. You know the I remember, only, the I remember only time, seeing an interview with yeah, him where they, they, they said they that. The only time Rachel ever screamed and lost the plot and, and really, I don't want to say embarrassed herself because she was just backing her man, really. But she'd had a drink the night before with her dad, sorry, the, before the fight and she turned up to ringside in, in America and she sat right behind the Showtime commentators and they very politely asked us to sit down on a, on a number of occasions and she very impolitely told him that she's backing me sit down and shut up in a scouse accent and she just got on with it she was shouting swearing screaming and she was basically the third commentator it's the only time she's ever done it she's not done it since she she cringes every time i play it to her when she's winding me up but yeah lucian Butte had a, a an outtake of that to try he thought that she did that every time so that was part of his mental psyche build up for that i mean 
it didn't work for him. And Rachel was quite as a mouse sitting ringside. She'd probably have a, a little bit of a shout. But yeah, he got the wrong idea of Rachel there. But no, he did. He was really trying to get prepared to the point of where he could even hear the crowd. But nothing was going to help the poor fellow that night because I was um, a man on fire. I mean, had you in any sense been preparing for, for life after boxing? Or at what point during your career did you start to do that? Because you've been shrewd with your investments. Towards the end, you did make a lot of money. But if that had been it that night against Butte, as you say, that you had some money, you, you, you'd done pretty well. But did you have a plan? Not really, no. I didn't really have anything set in stone what I was going to do. I, I always had one eye on maybe doing something with Sky as a pundit. But that's not going to ever change your life. And... You know, I've got a few other bits and bobs going off. I've invested in property since I was a kid. My first house I bought, I was 19. And when I signed up professional with Mick Hennessy many years ago, the signing bonus was probably 35 grand, I think. That's what I got in my bank to sign pro. And I used that as two deposits on two houses. So I've always been quite, quite shrewd. So I've got a bit of a property portfolio built up over the years. So I thought, I'm not, I'm not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be able to not eat, but... I might have to go back to work. I might have to do something, find a job doing something. And yeah, the, the thought of that was quite daunting. And I can see why lots of athletes, not just in boxing, in other sports, especially football as well, you sign a two-year contract, you're on 50, 80, 150 grand a week for a year or two. You've got a big mortgage on the house. And all of a sudden, the contract ends. They don't get renewed or the, the tier, the ACL. And, and they're on the bench and then the career ends. They're like, you know, they're back to looking what they're going to do for the rest of their life. And it's very difficult. And I, and I was concerned about that ever so slightly. And that, that fueled me as well in my charge to beating um, Butte. So have you managed to find anything that's even remotely replaced that adrenaline charge of boxing? I mean, you play a lot of poker now, but nothing's ever quite going to be the same. But I suppose if you were ready to stop, and I remember you telling me the point at which you realised you were, because you were... You were staying in training. You kind of started camp because you were thinking you might get Chavez um, at the end of March, I think it was, 2015, after Groves at Wembley the previous year. So you were, you were ticking over. And I think you might, you might have been away and you went for a run around the lake and halfway around you just stopped. And at that point you just thought, this is it, this is done. Like, because you just never would have done that before. No, that's right. I never stop on a run. I, all my work's diarised, all my runs, my press ups, my sparring sessions, it's all written in my little black books. I've got like 13 black books from 2001. To, um, I turned pro in 2002, but I started training in 2001, right through to 2013, 2014 when I retired. And um, yeah, I mean, I went for a run with Chavez on my mind. I spoke to Eddie Hearn. Rob McCracken was, was coming down from Sheffield to come and train me in. Yep, halfway around the run, my Achilles tendon was aching. I got a bit of a stitch. I'm, I'm just, I've got nothing in my head that gives me confidence to keep fighting, and no, nothing that's telling me, nothing that's telling me to stick with it and and drive forward. So basically, the desire had gone, and I knew the desire had gone. Halfway around the run, when it started to hurt, and I started to feel the pain, where I usually drive through and push through the pain, and don't let pain, you know, pain is temporary. Don't let it beat me, because if I let pain beat me, I could let that happen in the ring. But halfway around, yeah, I walked home. I mean, it was a lovely walk home as well. It was, it was quite a nice day and I was walking knowing and my, my Achilles tendon was easing off. And I just took a nice steady walk, sucked in the air. I thought, you know what, I've done it all. Beat Groves at Wembley in front of 80,000. Laugh all you want. I did it. I was the first one to do it. I made history. I've made a right few quid as well. I'm financially secure. I'm not injury free. I'm in pain. I've got three young children. I've got two at the time. I've got three now. And I just thought, that's me done. What, what am I doing? I mean, I talk about fighting now because I still miss it and I still enjoy it. And it's difficult to get that adrenaline. I do get it when I play poker. I'm an ambassador for party poker. Now and I play professional poker, which I enjoy. You've got a big hand, you're on a bluff. You want the guy to fold or you want him to call. Your heart starts beating. But it's nothing like nearly fighting. You can't compare poker with fighting. But it does get the adrenaline going. That and 130 mile an hour on my motorbike, which is stupid. Um, that's why I got rid of my sports bike. That gives the adrenaline going. So I'm a bit of, a, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie from that, that side of things. But no, I, I retired because the desire had gone and I was ready to retire. And um, I think it was the right decision and um, the best thing I've ever done, really. Well, Matt, it sounds like... We were talking to George about this, George Groves, a few weeks ago. It sounds like he'd become civilised. That, that's the phrase that George used. As you get older, fighters change. He's talking about his... his, his his family situation there, children enjoying the walk back round the lake. He'd become, finally, Carl Frotch had become civilised and, and the ring was no more. 
Yeah, and he, he was he was a caveman that night here when he fought Butte. Anything but civilized, just went out do or die attitude, which is which is brilliant, you know, from a fan's point of view. That's that's what we love. But I suppose as well, and I'm, I'm guessing, but he, I mean, he more or less said it. It's job done as well, isn't it? You know, you probably thought job done. You know, you, you're always that temptation for one more fight, but for what? I'm financially secure. I've hit all the highs. I'm, I've been in big fight after big fight. I've lost what I've won it back again. You know, I've smashed it on pay-per-view. I've done the Wembley, 80,000, broke that record. What are you going on for? I think, it, I think the Chavez, I remember the time watching, you know, you're in the sport and you're, you're, you're very, you know, keeping very current with everything and you're watching everything. I'm thinking, I remember at the time, Golovkin was really coming through, um, making his name. Still, no one really wanted to fight him, but he, and he was at his peak. He was still hungry. He was desperate. He was going to fight anyone. And they were kind of pushing that fight towards Carl, which I remember thinking, oh, he doesn't need him. You know, Carl at that stage of his career, not, who knows what, what I'm not saying he would have been, but he it was just, he just didn't need him because he didn't have the reputation. It wouldn't have got the money that, you know, where he is now with the Canelo fights and that, but he just wasn't, it, the risk-reward ratio of the Golovkin fight didn't stack up. The Chavez fight definitely did stack up because I think he was tailor-made for you. You'd have punched absolute holes in him. You'd have got the Vegas trip out of it. Probably had a lot of dough as well because Chavez would have brought more money to the pot than what Golovkin would. So I thought the risk-reward ratio on that fight stacked up, but you probably couldn't get And the Chavez fight was the fight that nearly did happen. I had a good conversation with Eddie Hearn. He was being tight and trying to play it down as usual. And I couldn't get the deal with him that I wanted. I couldn't get the split I wanted. Um, and I just thought to myself, like you said, what's the point? What am I going to prove? It ticks the Las Vegas box, but but just for the sake of ticking the box. Now, just be, I'd just be um, George Groves at Wembley. And I thought, it's not even half that kind of money. And I'm, I'm not boxing for money right up until the point when I retired. I was boxing for the titles and the belts, and I've proven that when I took on Lucian Butte for peanuts. Um, but, you know, I'm at this stage of my career now. I'm saying now I'm flashing back to after Groves. And uh, I've got a few n- nicks and injuries, and my an- ankles are hurting, and my arms, my elbows play up when I'm, when I'm throwing punches and missing my punches. My lower back's sore. I'd had four operations, ACL reconstruction, two operations on my hand, numerous cortisone injections in my elbows. And I just thought to myself, you know what, I've done it now. What am I even messing around at? I'm 37 in three weeks. I'm turning 37. I've got two young kids. And I've got a lovely house, beautiful fiancé. What more do I want? Where is it going to end? If I have one more with Chavez, then what do I do after that? Then where do I go? When, when is the last fight? When is my defining moment and my exit? Where, where is exit it? Exit strategy is important, I yeah. think, for how you feel in retirement. I remember we were talking ringside when exactly. David Hay come back and fought Bellew. And I said, you know, you've got to admire people who go out at the top because there is that temptation of one more big fight, one more big payday, one more great night. But so I think to walk away at the top, you know, says a lot about you and it it takes a lot. But I think it's your reputation then grows every year you're retired. It becomes even, you become, it goes even better. Where I think, you know, you have that one more fight and you get beaten or you're underperforming. Yeah. Then you're going to start having another one to try and undo that. Well, so you I just think- mentioned David Hay. And you're right. I mean, he had two rebellion and he was, he, need, he needed to get some money in the bank, I feel. I feel, I mean, he's done well. He's, he's, he's made decent investments, shrewd investments, which, which he told me, and I believe him. But he need, I know he needed a cash injection. And he didn't get one, he got two. So fair play to him, he took that. But, he got beat by somebody who probably wouldn't have been able to beat him a few years earlier. You know, and that's taken nothing away from Tony Bellew. David A was very talented, very fast, yeah. strong cruiserweight. And um, Amir Khan now is hanging around, mm. taking fights, really, that he shouldn't be in the ring with. I mean, he got knocked down in round one against Crawford. And then he struggled for three, four rounds, running and holding. And then he quit. Regardless of what you, how you want to dissect it or break it down, he got hit in the leg. We saw the shot land on the leg. I give Rocco, my eight-year-old son, bigger dead legs than that. He don't, he don't give up. Do you know what I mean? Can't quit. And it's a shame to see because I don't want to just give him stick because he spent his whole career being so brave. I mean, the Marcus Madonna fight, I'll never forget that. How he took that punishment and kept coming back and got the win at the end of that fight, which he deserved. Bravery and stupidity and toughness is unbelievable. But he's at a time now where if he keeps fighting, he keeps getting done. Not only is he going to damage his reputation and his legacy, and, and he will leave a legacy behind Amir Khan, well, he'll also start to knock away his health. And your health is your wealth. Not money in the bank, your health. So how many years you're going to live on healthily and see your kids grow up and your grandkids? Because there's too many people dying around us. There's too many people, one in two, getting cancer. And everybody that I know has been touched by cancer. And 
your health is so important. You can't be going in the ring for an extra few quid getting your brains knocked about in such a dangerous sport late on in your career when you can't compete with the top boys. It's an unfair disadvantage you're putting yourself in. And the risk-reward ratio that Matt Macken was talking about earlier is totally just all about risk. And the reward doesn't matter because you're going to get hurt when you carry on fighting for that extra few quid. I think I would have got away with Chavez's fight, but the Golovkin fight, I don't think I would have got away with it. Maybe I would have been, maybe not. I'm not going to say I won to one because I always back myself to win. But it started to get a bit silly, you know, that... Well, the that, weight loss that, would have been the, bad. That, the risk reward didn't ma- didn't match up then because Golovkin didn't have the sort of uh, hadn't proven himself to the level he has now. Where you know, so if you'd have beaten him, people have said, "Oh, well, Golovkin wasn't as good." So and you wouldn't have earned the money because he was small as, as well, name, smaller so than me. So. It wasn't, and you know, and he was really at his peak then. He was still really starving, hungry. He if just I was wasn't. to say one fight got away towards the end of my career, it would be the Chavez fight because I think he was made for me, like you said. I'd have earned a few quid. I want to earn as much as Groves, but I'd have ticked the Vegas box. I'd have ticked the Vegas box, well, the Wembley fight. I'd have ticked the Vegas box, um, and I could have said, you know what, we've had, we've had a bit of a swan song there. I've took all the fans out to Vegas. I, I know my brother Lee, who sat behind me, would have really loved to go to Las Vegas. Um, the mindset that he had at the time, he, he liked to drink, he liked to gamble, and a few other things. But for my own health and safety, I'm glad that fight didn't happen. It didn't need to happen, and I think it could have only been detrimental. Even if I'd have won, nobody would have been giving me any credit for it, so... I we'll, think, we'll I fight think him in a, at the right time. We'll fight him in a couple right of months time. anyway. Get back in the gym. Give myself five months. Chavez, Chavez Junior. Hey, everybody. This is Moto G Pete from the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast. Join us every week while we rate, review, ride, philosophize, and generally obsess over every single motorcycle make, model, and style that could possibly exist, plus news and racing. That's the Noko Moto Motorcycle Podcast from Moto One Podcast Network Studios. But just to go back to what you were you were talking about there, you blanked that one didn't in you? terms of <laughs> we'll get on to all of this. We'll get on to all of this. You and Groves and the rumours and the counter rumours. We're running out of time now. The you, general not... <laughs> mischievous nature of of Carl Froch. But just to get back to what you were talking about there about fighters continuing when really they should stop. It's happened for decades and it'll happen for decades to come. Some fighters just cannot leave it alone. You know that they don't yeah. need the money. Amir's yeah, done well. It's not always financial. And um, it's not about reputation. He's won world titles. It's just personally, a lot of fighters, they cannot, they, they probably look at life without boxing and without that feeling and without that spotlight and without that raw adrenaline and they don't know anything else. So it's just interesting that some can walk away. It'll be hard you two managed it and others just can't do it I think I mean, it's just down to extent, character and personality that's to all an it extent is. do you feel a bit of sympathy for them that they just can't they're like addicts yeah I mean they are like addicts well, they are addicts that's yeah, it exactly yeah, they're addicted to, to their sport their love and, and, and that's all fair and well and good but you know you need to take some advice some friendly advice from somebody close to you and I'm sure they're being told that you know what this fight's not really worth taking you, you, you're probably going to get knocked out you know I don't want to mention too many fighters because it's like I'm, I'm giving them out. We talked about David Hay earlier, but I'm sure Ricky Hatton had a couple of fights that he probably wished he didn't have. You know, the, the knockout against Manny Pacquiao was a real bad knockout. And um, I'm sure he'll look back on that one and say, you know what, I, I didn't need the money for that one because he didn't. He had, he had a fantastic career, made a lot of money on pay-per-view and it was a bad knockout. And he's got to live with that. And I, I spoke to Matthew Hatton actually in Vegas um, last week on the, on the Canelo um, Jacobs fight and I got that kind of impression that, that Hatton's okay, he's happy, he's, he's doing what he's doing, but he'd have probably rather not took that one. What do you think to that, Matt? Oh, I, I, I totally agree with you because it's like you're, you're fighting on to earn money that you, you're not going to spend, that you don't need, yet the result and the, or the way that, the, yeah, the manner of the result, you know, it affects your kind of your, your happiness, you know, how you see yourself, how other people see you, your reputation, how you perceive yourself, how other people how you perceive other people perceiving you it's like it's just a fight that I think if Ricky could give the money back and not have done the fight I think he would have yeah I agree and, and Roy Jones Jr. as well I mean he's, he's stuck around far too long Mike Tyson had too many fights late on just, just couldn't leave the game alone and, uh, so many so many the, the list goes on well, I think describing it as an addiction is, is 100% accurate. And when fighters retire, when athletes retire, I do think with boxing as well, just because of the nature of it, there's a strong chance that you're going to suffer from some kind of PTSD because you're just used to doing something which is very public, which can be utterly brutal and at times humiliating if you get 
knocked out in front of a big crowd of people. It's an extremely unusual way to, to earn a living, and it's one that both of you chose. Now that you're finished, what's always interested me is the kind of Carl Frotch public persona, because we know you, but it's fair to say that you are not afraid to wind people up and that probably more than any other former athlete, big star that I've, that I've met, you genuinely don't seem to care at all what people outside of a select band of people, fr- close friends and family, think about you. Yeah, well, and why should I? Why should I, why should I be I'm worried? not saying you should, no, it's exactly. just unusual. But people do, but I, I just couldn't care less. If you're talking about like social media, Twitter trolls and people on Instagram, what they've got something to say, it means absolutely nothing. Because I, I, I'll invite every single Twitter troll and, and Instagram idiot to, to the next outing. I'm, I'm here in Nottingham at the minute. They know when the next schedule is. They know I'm working for Sky. Come and meet me. Come and say hello. I guarantee you you'll be asking me for my autograph or you'll be asking for a selfie because I never get anybody face-to-face ever give me a stick. Maybe the guy at the top seat in the rafters, in the cheap seats, might shout down something at me. That's about as close as these little idiots get. But uh, I just have a bit of fun with them. But one thing I've got a reputation for, I tell the truth. I speak my mind. And you, you talk about winding people up. Well, you know, if you're talking about maybe coming out of retirement, I've toyed with the idea about coming out of retirement again over the period of being retired, not, not for financial gain, but for, for something more personal, like a goal that's going to get me back in the gym, get me training, and then at the end of the training session, have a look at it and say, why not actually? I think I could beat him. I'm realistic. You know, I'm not going to jump in with uh, Joshua Boazzi. I'm not going to jump in with Callum Smith. But if Chavez Jr. drags himself down from whatever he's walking around it, in between smoking whatever he's smoking, I don't think that's libelous. I mean, it's, it's been public that has it. He's been smoking something. Um, or, I don't know, George Grove's on about coming down. What's he walking around at now? About 17, 18? I don't know. He's, he's a big lump. If he gets down, then I'd certainly consider it. I'd have a look and say, you know what? That'll get me in the gym. That'll keep me fit. And then I'll have an easy fight and make a few quid. Not just look after my kids, look after my grandkids. So we, we have a little moments of madness as professionals. We say, you know what? I could do that. And you've got DAZN chucking tens of millions away at people. Just chucking money away. And you've got to look at it and say, you know what? I think I'll be all right in this fight. There's massive money here. If I choose my dance partner correctly, this could be a this could be an easy fight. This could be a gimme. So I've looked at it and I'm looking at it lately. I'm looking at stuff. I'm in the gym. I'm training for a TV show actually that's that's coming up. Watch this space. More will be revealed soon, and I'll see how I feel at the end of the training and um, see what goes down. But I'm not afraid to tell people how I feel face to face or on social media. Uh, or over the phone on the radio, TV interviews, I do whatever. I'm not. I'm not worried. And if someone wants to challenge my opinion, I'm happy to debate them at any stage. But not over social media because they're just little anoraks sitting there behind the computer with a can of super tenants and a cigarette. <laughs> and the, I'm not, I'm not going to insult anyone else now. But it, it's interesting. Something you touched on there. When fighters continue, say, past their sell by date, it doesn't always need to be some kind of disaster if you pick appropriate opposition i'm not saying we should have a kind of veterans or seniors tour in boxing but can i give you a perfect example and you know anyway floyd mayweather now what's he doing he's making hundreds of millions of pounds for conor mcgregor conor mcgregor cannot fight in a boxing ring he can fight in a mixed martial art ring in the cage in the octagon he cannot box he cannot punch the skin off a rice pudding he's got no balance for boxing he leans in he's just he's just a total risk-free fight and um, Mayweather is just so clever because he did that one and now he's looking at doing another one. Maybe Pacquiao. Pacquiao's well past his sell-by date. Maybe, maybe that fight's going to happen, but that's the way to do it. But he's obviously got the name, but he's not stupid, is he? He don't jump back in with the top boys that are running the show at his weight division now. No, not at all. And, and in, in terms of other things... I mean, I half kind of expected to see you turn up on this latest uh, SAS show with your mate Ant Middleton for the um, Stand Up to Cancer one recently. I mean, why are we not seeing you on that? Surely that's right up your street. Yeah, there's a couple of bits. Uh, what it is, contrary to, to people's belief, I'm not 
I'm not one for chasing fame or glory. I turned down Strictly Come Dancing. I turned down Celebrity Jungle. I've turned down a lot of high profile. Oh, come on. You've got to go in the jungle. Kids, I would love kids, to see you in the kids, jungle. My kids are twisted. in the jungle would be one of my favourite ever things. If I, I ever do that, it'll be for my kids because they're begging me to do it. But I'd be able to tell people, listen, you need to watch this. You need, you need <laughs> to watch this because that's a 24-7 show. Big Brother, all them shows, I've, I've really got no interest. As I'm getting a bit older, I'm getting a bit more mellow, then I'm going to consider a certain things like I said I'm training for a bit of a show now so watch this space and um, something's going to be coming out but I did a dance show with my partner Rachel stepping out made a fool of myself I did a a gymnastic show (laughs) I didn't make a bigger fool of myself with Joe Calzaghe on strictly embarrassing but um, the 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 gymnastic show I did tumble I did that because I enjoyed it I was straight after the the Wembley fight with Groves and it was it was good money, but it was gymnastics. I've always wanted to be able to do a tuck-back somersault and a round-off tuck-back because my best friend did a bit of gymnastics when he was a kid and he can do like parallel bar handstand pushes and stuff in the gym. And then when, when the opportunity to do a tumble came up, it was something I wanted to do. So I did it, got involved and enjoyed it and did well. I can do a standing tuck-back now. I won't do it in here. The ceiling's a bit low. But um, I'm not interested, never have been interested in being famous or being a celebrity. Do you know what, Carl? I, th- I think one of your best performances that never gets talked about, that's just kind of been forgotten somehow, was the Jermaine Taylor win to get, you know, dropped in, was it the fourth round? Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was boxing really well, Taylor. He had that speed, didn't he? You know, he did, and then, but then till I, I mean, was it 12 seconds left? In the last round, behind on the cards, it was incredible. I mean, unbelievable, really. incredible. You know, you, you could see, you could see that he was he was spent, but 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 you were running on 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 vapor as well. You know, it was the end of a really tough, hard fight, but you you got it done somehow, and that was the start of of that run. You know, Durrell, um, Kessler, Abraham. Tough, tough fights. You had 12 world title fights in a row in your fi- final That's 12 right. And that was my first world title defence after the torrid 12 rounds I had here in this arena, the Nottingham Arena, the Motor Point Arena in Nottingham, um, against Jean Pascal, who was an unbeaten Canadian, who after I beat him, I'm not blowing my own trumpet by the way, I'm just stating facts, went on to win a light heavyweight title. He beat the bad Chad Dawson. He beat, did he beat Tarvo? He didn't knock out. He won the, he, I think he beat a guy called Adrian Dicuna for the... For the um, light heavyweight world title as well, but to go I on and beat Chad Dawson, many people really in sort of the modern era, in recent times of the modern era, in sort of certainly in British boxing anyway, that for fight after fight after fight, going into what people considered, you know, fifty-fifty-ish fights. I mean, it was literally one after the other. And, and I didn't know what the problem was with the promoters and why the TV wasn't getting hold and why, why I'd never captured the public's imagination at that time. But it was 2008 when I beat Pascal, December 2008, and that was the financial crash. All the markets had crashed. We had a, a, a recession, a double-dip recession. TV companies were pulling out of the sport. BBC had sacked it off. My fight against Pascal was on ITV, and then they came out of boxing. I mean, Mick Hennessy, my promoter at the time, he's, he's had a bit of bad luck, really, because he grafted hard and worked hard. Um, and never really got anywhere because at that time when I became world champion, there was no there was no boxing on on television except for Sky Sports, and they had their pay per view fighters with with David Hay and Ricky Hatton, you know, dominating the charge really. So I signed the Super Six in America, and and did all right out of it. I looked at the contract; it was it was millions of dollars, and I thought, bloody hell, this is good. Yeah, I actually can earn a few quid out of boxing. So I didn't earn much for my my world title fight. I didn't earn much for the third world title against against um, Lucian Butte, but in that period of being in America, five fights in America, I set myself up, I was and then say, I came you, back you, to England. You weren't good money in the Super 6, but I think earn is the key yeah, word exactly. there. You didn't half earn it. Tough fights, back to back, and um, yeah, no regrets really, because everything set up for where I got to. I won the world title, went over and boxed Jermaine Teller, that was aired Sunday afternoon, <laughs> when no one was watching it. People were eating a Sunday lunch, not putting the television on. And, um, I think that was on primetime as well, was it? Like it a, was on a pay per view show, primetime channel, which never took off a pay per view channel that no one could find. So then I went into the Super Six. So that was my payoff for being world champ, if you like. But I fought back to back monsters, five fights against five top fighters. And it wasn't until I came back to England, defeated from Ward, that we've already talked about it. I took the Butte fight. And it was that that then set me up. But every stage of my career, everything I've done, winning the world title, defending against Jermaine Taylor, losing against Mikel Kessler, then beating Abraham straight after that, it's given me motivation to keep going every time. If I'd have beat Andre Ward, it's a big if, but if I'd have got the decision that night against Andre Ward, would I have come back to England and put on a performance like that against Lucian Butte? 
Everything, I don't think no chance. Reason. No chance because the motivation came from that loss against Ward. I was so fuming. I was infuriated. I was really, really pissed off. It just yeah. shows you though when you when you do think about it, like or, or, I mean Carl sort of the, the credibility and and, and the, I suppose validation and the money along with the money. It, it it all came sort of after the boot tape. Not all of it, but you know what I mean? A, a large amount of it has come from everything you did post On the boot tape, where yeah. really you look at all those hard fights you had, one after the other. Do you know what I mean? For for what you weren't and what you got out of it, for what you put, for the risk and the hard fights you did, you didn't really. No. It was after that that you, you got the credit you deserved. And that's, where I, well, that's why I got there in the end. And it's why I don't begrudge it, because I never boxed for money. I never interested. Maybe that was stupid early on. I was with Rob McCracken, my coach. We were starting it out kind of together. We was, was in the journey together. We, we put our trust in Mick Hennessy. Unfortunately, he couldn't really perform for us. And then every single fight, every step of the way, it's not so much what am I earning, it's what belt is it? WBC belt, green and gold, right. WBA, the black one. Kessler's got that one in the rematch. IBF title, Lucian Beauty, oh, the red one, add that to the collection. I've got two green and gold belts. I've got the black one, so I've got the red one. Now I can get the black one. And it's like the full collection for me. You know, I just missed out on the ring magazine belt. And I wasn't thinking, how much do I earn? How much do I get paid? How many views will I get on pay-per-view? Because I didn't know anything about that until my last three fights. And that's what kept me going. And that's why, like when you said about the Butte fight being, you really backed him up and smashed him to bits. And it was like a throwback fight. Rob McCracken used to always call me a throwback fighter old school fighter someone who can just get down and dirty and have a roll around on the cobbles and have a proper good old fashioned passionate dust up be a knuckle fighter I'd do that all day long and, and that's what Lucian Butte got that night he got a good street fight against somebody who was mentally charged and determined and, and basically running ragged Speaking of belts, I think I might have read this in your book, but is it true that when you won your British title outright, they sent you your Lonsdale belt and you weren't impressed with it? You thought it was, <laughs> it was, you thought it was scruffy, so it you sent been, it back to get them exactly, to tidy yeah. it up. It had been, it'd been passed from pillar to post. David Starry had it and um, I think Dean Francis had it for, for, for a while. Um, the late Dean Francis, actually. I mean, what a, what a sad story that is. And the belt had never been won outright because you've got to defend it three times to win it outright. So when I eventually got the belt... People had been putting Brasso polish on it and all the Brasso had gone through to the, the velvet on the back, like the, the red, blue and white, the British colours. So it was all black and, and knackered and it was scratched and there was bits hanging off. And um, Charlie Giles, um, the British Boxing Board of Control, and Bob Rice, a good friend of mine. Now, I need to go and see him actually soon. And I give it back to him and said, look, do me a favour, get it, get it sorted for me. And he had it totally reconditioned and it was absolutely gleaming. And um, yeah, it's my prized possession. It sits in the top of my trophy cabinet at home. And you mentioned, you mentioned a few times Andre Ward's name, and that brings us on to a kind of another entertaining subject with you, which is the kind of verbal spars you like to have with people every now and again. Andre Ward particularly, you've liked to engage over the last few months. And people have noticed that when someone generally retires, you will, you'll give with one hand and then you'll take away with the other one. So James the Girl is a good example. You gave him some credit and then you said you would absolutely back him up and and smash him to bits right. Lucien Boutet I think you congratulated on him on his retirement um, and then said something along the lines of but obviously you were never the same after I cobra'd you in Nottingham but what <laughs> you know you, you kind of you, you enjoy it don't you you do quite enjoy that yeah, I like the bit of tongue in cheek and Andre Ward will get me and get what I'm saying because you know he calls himself the son of God SOG and he'll, he'll know as well as I do that the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away and that's what I do I give credit then I give a bit of balance and I'm not just giving stick for the sake of giving stick. As far as I'm concerned, I'm telling the truth and being honest to thyself. So Andre Ward's very good. He's very good at winning. He's unbeaten since he was 12. He's high school wrestling champion. He's took that wrestling into the ring. Um, but let's be totally honest. He's boring as sin. He's absolutely put a glass eye to sleep as far as I'm concerned, that's my opinion. Some people like to watch somebody holding and hitting and using their head and wrestling. HBO don't like it. Most of the fans don't like it. Hence the views or the lack of views and the lack of pay-per-view buys when he fights. But you've got to give him credit because he knows how to win. He's effective at beating people, which he's, he's done for his whole career. And the people think I'm bitter about it. I'm not. The Andre Ward loss gave me the motivation to do what I did to Lucian Butte and go on and earn a fortune. That's what that fight did for me. And I've admitted on numerous occasions, if I'd have got a rematch with Andre Ward, he'd have probably beat me. Now, if I was that pissed off and that bitter and that upset about it, I'm not going to say I'm going to lose a rematch, am I? I'm just honest. You know what I mean? What, what can people say about that? If I didn't knock him out, which I'd back myself to do, 
with a different referee in a different city like Nottingham Forest City Ground, which I invited him to, to fight. With a different ref, not Steve Smoja, letting him hold and hit and do his style, I think I could knock him out. But chances are I'm going to lose again on points to Andre Ward. But everybody would fall asleep fucking watching it. So I'm glad it didn't happen. Next question. <laughs> okay, so a, try, uh, slight, a slight change of subject. Do you really think the earth is flat? Flat earth is... Um, it's an interesting debate because my older brother Lee, the renovator for us, who's currently fighting, it's a big fight in August here in Nottingham against Nathan Ward. Over four years sober as well, by the way. Sobriety is um, the new religion, as far as I'm concerned. But look it up, do your own research. So, yeah, what was the question? Do you really think the earth is flat? Oh, yeah, the flat earth. Here's the problem. I've tried to prove, and I challenge anybody listening to this, the same, same challenge. I challenge them all. Prove that the Earth is spherical. Prove that it's round. Prove that it's actually a globe. Just try and do it. Try and find some evidence that tells you that the Earth's round, the Earth's a sphere, and just, just write in, tweet in, do whatever you want to do. Can't because wait this because I'm struggling with it. I can't <laughs> prove my brother, my older brother, Lee the Renovator Froch, who was a fully-fledged flat earther. I am not. But he is, and I've tried to prove him wrong, and in doing so, I find myself thinking that the Earth's flat. Well, well, all I know is that when Michael Conlon was boxing in uh, Brisbane, we left LA and we flew west, and 12 hours later, we were in Brisbane. <laughs> so I don't see how the world can possibly be flat. I could get a piece of A4 paper right down the centre of the flat Earth, which is the North Pole, and right down the ice wall, which is all around the south, south, south all the way around the um, circumference of the flat earth, and you would fly east to west and circumnavigate, and you'd get from where you've just said to where you've just said in the same flight path. Next question. I don't think you would. Not in 12 hours. You would. You'd go round east to west. It works. It works. All I'd say is do your own research. Well, I'm not, I'm not prepared to chair the debate on this definitively either way, but th- this, is, this is a classic example of something that I never thought would happen to me when I was rising through the ranks and, and thinking about doing this for a career. And I find these kinds of moments enormously entertaining for that reason. Did, when I was watching you, for example, when, you know, however many years ago, did I think that I would end up in a dressing room in the Nottingham Marina discussing whether the earth is flat with Carl Froch and Matt Macklin? No, I didn't, but I'm more than happy to do it. You are better researched on this subject than we are. Do you like a conspiracy theory, though, in general? Is it something that well, appeals to you? I don't particularly like a conspiracy theory, but I like, I like hard evidence. I like facts. Like with boxing, I like to look at stats and facts and who's beat who. And I know that whoever's beat whoever on paper doesn't mean that they can win, but I just like to look at knockout ratios, wins, losses, weights. And, um, you know, I take that with everything I do. And that includes my investigation into Flat Earth. And holistic health as well. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm currently eating a fully plant-based raw food diet. And my body's alkaline. And there's, there's things out there that, that are banned, like vitamin B17, which, which has direct um, healing properties to cancer. We know that cannabis oil, because and, and so, they're releasing CBD, and we know that THC in cannabis has got direct links to curing many diseases. It's been proven now, and that companies that started up now and floating the market are making an absolute fortune. I'm talking hundreds of millions bringing cannabis into the market. It's legalized. I was in Vegas last week, and all I can do is smell weed all the way around the casinos because it's legal. Why, why is it being illegal for so many years? Because you can't patent it, because it's a plant, anybody can grow it. Um, but now all of a sudden they're getting used to the idea that actually we know what to do with this now. We know how to tax it. So now cannabis is good for you. But why are certain things banned? B17, you know, cannabis. Why is it banned? Why have the government banned it? I don't want to say too much because you start opening up too much of a conspiracy can of worms. There's something going on. But do your own research. Yeah, I choose to live. talk out. I choose to, yeah, we might get talk out. I mean... <laughs> Who was it the other day giving an interview about a, a documentary, Nipsey Hussle, talking about a holistic doctor that cured AIDS, that beat the state in court, proven that he cured it. He got took out while he was making a documentary. Look it up. What was the doctor's name? Sebi. Dr. Sebi. He's now dead. Did he get killed? We don't know. Draw your own conclusion. Nipsey Hussle was talking about that. In fact, I've got to stop what I'm saying here. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to, might have to stop this. Nipsey Hussle, Nipsey Hussle's now dead, and he was talking about that. He was going to make a documentary. He's gone now. All I'm saying is, 
is something a bit weird going off. Whether it's right or wrong or whether it's a mad opinion, but no, I don't think we've been to the moon. I don't think man went to the moon, but you can ask a lot of people, have we been to the moon? And what do you think we've been to the moon, Andy? Well, I can see why people think that there is an argument for a conspiracy there, because the evidence, particularly as we get further and further away from the event, is much easier to question. But definitively, I think it's very difficult to prove it one way or the other. There's no evidence that they've been there. They've lost all the bloody... They've lost all the... All the are you that from? Lost all the data. They don't have the technology anymore to go to the moon in, in 2019. But they had it in 2019. I, th- I think your willingness to question all of this is it, it kind of it's quite illuminating for the for the sort of person you are, and it does explain maybe the way you approach things when you were boxing. You talked earlier on about your black book where you would document everything, and you talked about liking facts mm. and liking things that you can yeah. look at with your own eyes. I heard somebody describe boxing um, in a book I read recently as being a naked eye universe. And what they meant by that was that it's one of those sports particularly where you can really only trust what you can see. Mm. Are you that kind of a person? Basically, when it came to to your training, when it came to your nutrition, when it came to anything, you wanted to see the results of your own eyes and you would decide what happened. Listen, my eyes, including my third eye, is fully open. What I mean by that is my pineal gland is no longer calcified by fluoride. The fluoride that you drink every day in your tap water. I've defluoridated my cal- and decalcified my pineal gland. Look into it. It's in your tap water. The government put it in there. I'm, I'm, I'm playing with fire again, aren't I? But it's true. Look it up. Look up the pineal gland. P-I-N-E-A-L. Have a look what fluoride does to it. Every time you turn your tap on and drink it, you're calcifying the pineal gland. That is your third eye. That is your subconscious. I am spiritually free without sounding like a lunatic. I do meditate. I do visualize things that happen, eventually happen. And I use it as motivation. I use it as drive. At the minute, I'm using it to, to expand my empire with my older brother, Lee, who is also on the same mission that I'm on in the holistic world of conspiracies and madness, if you want to call it, and flat earth. But we're happy, we're awake, and we're enjoying life. And I think you should join the club. Matt Macklin's nearly there. Matt Macklin is on the fence. He's in sobriety. I don't think he'll mind me saying this. And he is, he is waking up. I'm awake. My brother's awake. I've got many friends that are awake. And uh, the more people that get there, the better, as far as I'm concerned. But the masses are asleep. Well, I've done some meditation myself, some yoga and those kinds of things. I'm not averse to it. My, my mind is open on these matters. How's your third eye, Matt? What's its current condition? Yeah, um definitely uh, interesting stuff and um, <clears throat> I'm definitely spiritual definitely believe there's forces way beyond our control at work um, yeah definitely uh, I'm open to anything <laughs> yo I'm DK co-host of the One Star Recruits podcast my best friend Rip and I host five star athletes celebs business leaders comedians and coaches from around the world each week, I can guarantee you the show will always have great laughs, catch up on lives in relatable ways, and have a ton of fun. We're recruiting you. We are the one stars, which means we can ask the questions that no other podcast asks to guests like Joey Chestnut, Evander Holyfield, Bobby Hurley, Jenny Finch, Ryan Lochte, Montel Jordan. New guests every week, compelling interviews that you want to hear. Check us out wherever you get podcasts. One Star Recruits. So when you look back on it all, are you one of these people who subscribes to the theory that everything happens for a reason? Personally, I'm, I'm not an enormous fan of that phrase because I just think that it requires a you kind of... you got George of, Graves into a lot of trouble, that's what you're thinking, aren't you? Well, I mean, it just requires a kind of subscription to a sort of fatalism that I don't really believe in. I think that things happen and you react as best you can. And, and positive people will react well to any situation. So a setback, they will react well to it. And then after the event, they'll say everything happens for a reason because what seemed like a bad thing, they got a positive result from. But that's just down to how they are as a person. Yeah, I know what you're saying. So the everything for a reason would mean that it's going to happen anyway. It's fate. It's, it's destined to happen. And I, I don't believe in that. I believe that we're in control of our own destiny and things ha- happen because of... I don't know, Newton's first law of motion, every action causes a reaction. 
and the butterfly effect of, of what people do. But um, I, I just think it's really important to, to, to know your surroundings, know, know the country that you're living in and the, and, the, and the flat earth or global earth that you're living on, the spherical earth that you're living on, and know how it runs and how it's managed and how it's controlled by the masses, by the governments. I mean, look how the governments run the country. Look at what they're doing. Look at, look at the medication they give you. Look at how the tax system works. Look at what's happening with Brexit. Have a look at where it's going. It's all... If they well, thought that our vote mattered, they, def- wouldn't, they wouldn't give us a vote. We've gone off. We've gone, we've off, gone, off, the, well off, the we've gone off the boxing chair. <laughs> but I'm just a believer in being awake and having a look at everything and make your own mind up. But bottom line is, you've got to look after yourself. Be as healthy and happy as you can. Look after your kids if you've got them, and just live your life with an open mind and try and try and be a free spirit. And what I mean by that is, look up the pineal gland your third eye, your subconscious, waking that up. Matt Macklin's laughing at the minute, but let me tell you something. Just look it up. Do your research. Have a look at what the pineal gland is. People don't know what that gland is that sits at the top of your central nervous system in the middle of your brain. People don't know what it is. It's your third eye, your subconscious. It was dulled down with the hippies in the 70s and 80s by the government and there was outcast and things were banned. No LSD, no weed, no this, no that. Let's get some fluoride in the water. Do your own research. It's interesting. Well, this is interesting stuff. You're right. We have got away from the boxing chat, but this just informs as to what kind of uh, uh, a character you are. And the have I got too much that... time on my hands? That's another big question. Well, you do have a lot of time. I'm on a your raving hands. lunatic. You, you do have a lot of time <laughs> on your hands to do uh, to research these things. So let's just finish with a quick five minutes on the current state of boxing these days. We were talking to Andy Lee a few weeks ago, and me and Matt, and we were saying that. You know, how surprising it was that him and Andy never boxed and, and none of them ever boxed him, Andy, Darren Barker, Martin Murray and what a draw that would be now with, with the money that's around now. Do you think there's ever been a better time to be a pro boxer? I don't think so, no. Um, just with, with the platform that Sky Sports pay-per-view have and the opportunity for kids to become a household name and, and go on pay-per-view and then the addition of, of all the other platforms. I mean, ITV pay-per-view, BT Sport... And then in America, you've got DAZN. And they're just pumping hundreds of millions of pounds into that. I mean, Canelo Alvarez... Do you you think what they're doing is sustainable? I don't think it's sustainable, no. But I don't think the people that are doing it, like the Ukrainian or or Eastern Bloc billionaire that that is pumping money into DAZN, I don't think he cares if it's sustainable. It's a big game. He might be connected. He might be related to the Rothschilds. And then we're back to conspiracy or the Freemasons. (laughs) He's not bothered about money. When you've got that much money and you're that rich and that wealthy, let's just have a bit of fun. It's a punt, isn't it? Let's have a bit of fun. And that's all that's happening. Just enjoy the ride while you can. And that's what we'll talk about coming out of retirement for that bit more money potentially. But let's be honest, it's too dangerous. I'm 42 years old. I'm grey. I've still got all my hair, but I'm grey. I've got a straight nose, but I still think I could do a few of them. And enjoy doing it. Are you getting married soon? Is I that right? So. I think so. Yeah, a couple of weeks actually. So how? I mean, I'll start thinking about that. G- g- given how meticulous you are with with all these things in your life, how, how have preparations for that been? I've just left it to Rachel. To be honest, she, she she wanted to pick the dress and she wanted to pick the venue. So I introduced her to a couple of mates of mine. I thought not. you'd have picked the dress. No, no. I, she, I, if I had to pick the dress, it wouldn't have cost me. It wouldn't have cost me five digits. It cost, it cost me four. <laughs> but um, no, I left it to that. I mean, women want things right. They want it the way they want it. So, food, dress, music, guests. Actually, didn't you? Didn't you? I've had a bit propose to her in the ring at the end of a fight on Sky, and then kind of immediately take it back yeah, saying it was, it was yeah. kind of a pre-proposal luckily she won't luckily like. she won't listen to this she's not into boxing podcast so yes I, I, I kind of proposed and I kind of knew I was going to before the fight but I thought if I go out my way and buy a ring and get this ring and then I lose because I just thought I can't propose if I lose it's just not I don't want to look back and go I've lost the fight to Groves now I'm proposing and put that in with a wedding so I never got a ring sorted out it got too late in the day and trying to trying to pick a nice diamond it's hard work you've got to with my with my mad mind, I've got, you've got to look at the colour, the clarity, the symmetry, the fluorescence. There's lots of different things to look at when you buy it. I don't know if anyone anyone's been diamond ring. If anyone, if there's any gemologists listening, they'll know what I mean. There's a lot. There's a lot to look at, and um, I feel like I've got a degree now in gemology. So I never got the ring bought, but I proposed, and then I did it again at a later date, and and made a right mockery of that as well. But she's all right. She loves me. She loves me for what I am, not what I can do. So what do you imagine that you'll be doing in the next 10, 
20 years. You're bringing up a family, of course, but can you see anything else that you might, anything completely different maybe that you might kind of get your, get your hands on or with your regime is basically your plan just to live for as long as you possibly can? Yep, live as long and as healthy as I can so I can see my kids and potentially my grandkids um, if I allow my kids to have grandkids, that is. That's another issue we're talking about. It might sound a bit strong, but I might not want grandkids. Um, but um, That wouldn't be your decision. <laughs> Would it not? No. <laughs> you know, you say, listen, don't doubt this, don't doubt this man. Um, I want to be here long enough to see my kids grow up and um, enjoy playing golf with Rocker well into my 70s and 80s, if possible. And, um, yeah, unfortunately, people aren't given that opportunity. They get old, they get ill, but I think the slow down and they're not living the healthy lifestyle that would potentially give them longevity. And I'm just trying to get myself to a, a fit, strong, physical and mental state so I can live as long and as healthy as possible. Because bottom line is, why, for a while we're here, I mean, the short amount of time we have in the sun, um, you just want to enjoy it, don't you? You just want to enjoy life. Because ultimately, we're all on borrowed time. Because time's coming to an end. We all come in the same, and we all go out the same. No matter how much money you've earned, no matter how, what material objects you've got, what items you've got, how big your house is, um, how, how famous you are, bottom line is, you're going in that box. And whether you're getting buried or burnt, and as morbid as it sounds, it's the absolute truth. So, for example, if you're 70 years old and you're a billionaire... Yeah, and you said, and someone said to you, you've got two months to live, but if you give me your billions of pounds, you can have another 10 years. What are you going to do? You're going to hang on to your billions of pounds, or you're going to have another 10 years, or even another year. You'd give it all up, wouldn't you? That's the point I'm making. So, what's more important, health or wealth? Health. Therefore, make health your wealth. Do your research, live clean, moderation, be happy, have a balance, but don't abuse yourself like they want you to look after yourself well i think that is i think that's a great message matt i'll give you kind of the final word though let's just have your thoughts on carl frotch the fighter you know you saw his whole career you were with him every step of the way almost you know him really really well how would you kind of sum him up Hang on, I think you might have just clicked the... Yeah, you just clicked Sorry. that switch down. <laughs> Funny story actually here. Buddy McGirt, who's a real stylist, real textbook, real well-schooled, you know, anything, anyone who does anything that's not absolutely perfect, you know, cause it's like they're scratching a blackboard or something. He's like, oh, you know, and we were asking him. I remember my brother Sean was saying him to one day, what do you think about this guy, Buddy? And he was like, yeah, yeah, you know, breaking him down, breaking him down, we're going through all the different fighters. And then Sean goes to him, what do you think of Carl Frutch? And he just paused and he was smoking his pipe, but he was going, smoking a pipe. And it was just silence for a bit. Cause, and then he just goes, he was awkward as hell, man. <laughs> because Buddy's looking, I can know a Buddy's looking at something like Carl Frotch, who's, you know, c- crosses his feet at times. He's punching from down here. His chins can sometimes be in the air. And it was anything but textbook. You know, so Buddy's looking at him and that would have just been chaos to Buddy. Yeah, how can he say anything detrimental when he's beaten who he's beaten time after time after time? But it's so, I mean, that was Buddy's kind of nice way, you know, saying he's awkward as hell as again. It's just absolutely everything that goes against everything as I see boxing. But, you know, he found a way to win. You know, I mean, he, he slags Andre Ward. But Andre Ward found a way to win and Andre Ward was hard as nails and, you know, very in a, in a similar way, different styles as well. But Carl found a way to win. I mean, who, who beat you, Kessler? Which could have gone either way Kessler over in Denmark. Fight. And who's the other one? Ward. That was it. And that's it. I mean, you know, you look at the resume and you look at that. Like it was, he barely dropped. The, he didn't drop many rounds in his whole career. And he fought, he fought top top fighter time after time after time, and when they were in their peak. You know, they, you know, a lot of fighters beat certain names when they're past the sell. Boy, they, all those fights he fought, those guys, they were in their peak, one after it the other. It means a lot that does, because I'd love to be remembered as being somebody who never ducked anybody and who would be prepared and willing to fight anybody in a sport where 
that doesn't make any sense. It's not good for business sometimes. No. Well, I think, well, I think, you know, not interrupting you, but I think that is well and truly cemented. I don't think anyone, I think even people that give you a stick online or whatever, I don't think anyone can take that away from you. And uh, you, you can walk, I think Carl can, well, one thing about Carl Fratch, you can walk into a room and he's a champion among champions and he can hold his head high for the best of the best of his era in their peak. He was never, manu- I don't think he was particularly managed or promoted well because he wasn't manoeuvred. He just fought, he just went into real fight after real fight after real fight. And like uh, he said, Robert McCracken said, he's a throwback in that sense. Well, this has been great fun. It really has. Great, great fun. So interesting to hear about the career and about your thoughts on, on other things as well. And it's always good fun working with you on Sky too. So we'd better bear that in mind because we probably need to be somewhere fairly shortly to get something done. We're in the... We're in Dalton Smith's dressing room at the minute and Terry Harper's dressing room. They're in action a little bit later on. So thanks for listening to Macklin's Take. It's, it's getting a good reception. We're quite excited about it, about what we might be able to do with that. I've finally got some new software which allows us to actually track how many people are listening to it. And it's been getting up in the iTunes charts for sports podcasts and and stuff like that. We're not actually, we're quite big in Nottingham. Nottingham is our fourth, <laughs> Nottingham is our fourth city in terms of listens. London's top, Dublin's pretty good. No listens in Africa yet. This is okay. the, this is we'll a, this is the we'll feedback I'm getting, which is, I find a bit disappointing. But um, yeah, do give us a rate on iTunes. And I know why you should do that now. I've just been saying it up until this point because I've heard other people say it. But the reason is, if you give us a five-star rating, don't go on there and give us one star. That would be totally pointless. Five-star ratings make it easier for other people to find us. And we will keep these coming. A couple of weeks probably for the next one, but we're aiming to do, to do some damage in New York. Matt's got great contacts out in, uh, in NYC, so we're aiming to, to get a few in the tank there. And we'll just keep it rolling. And if you've got any questions for us, do flick them over. And we will catch you again next time. Sports Social Podcast Network.